0: You are listening to the East Point Church Sermon Podcast. We're a church that exists to glorify God as a gospel community that is growing in faith and reaching the world. From wherever you are listening, we hope that you are encouraged and challenged by today's sermon. Good
1: morning, East Point Church. Good morning. How are you guys? Good to be with you. I love, I love me a good mingle, man. Do you love yourself a good mingle? That what you just experienced in a connection time—that is the sign of life, right? When there is a mingling, mingling happening, that means that we are not just an event that you attend. This is not just something on your schedule or your agenda. This is a people, and this is a family, and we love to gather with our family. And so, welcome! So glad that you're here. Uh, as Aaron said, if you're a guest here, maybe you're just visiting our family for the first time. Seriously, such a special welcome. Uh, We pray that you feel welcomed and loved and warm. And if you need anything, just ask. Seriously, just tap on anybody around you and say, I need help. And they will help you. I promise you that, all right? So uh, go ahead and open up your Bibles. 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to be continuing in our series called Grow. And if you're newer with us, if you haven't been here from the beginning, I would encourage you to go and catch up on this series, you can do it on at YouTube, epeaston.com, um, you can, wherever you listen to podcasts, you can catch up. Um, and you should, because this is not just a sermon series. This is not just a few weeks to kick off the year. This, friends, is what we believe as leaders, is what God is calling us to focus on in 2023. This is going to be a year of growth, a rally cry. We are cultivating a culture here where we are growing in our faith. We are growing spiritually. And so, so happy that you're here, plugged in for this. Uh, Basically, again, if if you haven't tracked with us, here's what we're doing in this series. We are trying to take seriously Colossians chapter 1 verse 20. This is what it says, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Friends, we want to grow so that we look more like Jesus. Amen? We want to grow in a way that a year from now, when we look back at ourselves, spiritually speaking, we won't even recognize ourselves because we've grown. We've grown. And so what we've done is we've, we've taken seriously this word that says we want to become mature. And so from there, we have taken what we believe is a picture of maturity. And so we've broken up that picture of maturity into seven traits, seven values, seven marks that we believe help define and describe maturity. And so here's where we're going. This is our second to last week, and so I'm going to give you the spoiler now, right? Second second to last weekend. But here's where we're going. As a church, we have committed this year that we are doing what we call a spiritual growth plan. Right, you plan for everything. How many of you have planned for a vacation at some point this year? All right, <laughs> oh, we gotta get started on that, all right? If you're like, wait, you have to plan for a vacation? It's not just gonna happen, friends. You have to plan for vacation. You have to plan for the trip. You have to plan for doing home remodels. You plan for your children's education. Everything that is important to us, we plan, all right? And so we're saying, hey, how much more should we be planning then for our growth? And so here's what we're doing. As a community of believers, we are committing to get alone with the Lord, close the door, we're going to pray, and we're going to say, Father in heaven, which one of these areas of my life might you want me to work on in 2023? That's the prayer. We're encouraging, we are challenging you, East Point Church, to get alone with the Lord and say, Father, in which one of these areas would you want me to grow this year? And then you fill out a spiritual growth plan. A spiritual growth plan answers two questions. What is God saying to me, and what am I going to do about it? What is God saying to me? Here's where I think the Lord wants me to grow this year. And then what are you going to do about it? What are the steps that you're going to take to address your head, your heart, and your hands, right? What are the ways that you need to grow in your knowing, in your being, and in your doing? And so for more information, I'm going to encourage you to go to epeaston.com/growthplan. growth plan. And on your way out of this room today, we have some wonderful ladies there who are handing out info cards about this. We already have about 80 people who have completed a spiritual growth plan uh, after we launched this at Vision Night. Um, but hey, I'm going to encourage you, friends. That's why each of these weeks we've been focusing on a different value so that we might be able to discern from the Spirit which one of these, Lord, do you want me to grow in, in 2023? Just one. You're like, one? I need all seven. I know, me too. But think about the cumulative effect of just focusing on one, and then one, and then one, and think about the cumulative effect over the next decade of our lives as we as a people become intentional about our growth. So I'm gonna leave that there for you, okay? Spiritual growth plan, we're inviting you, join us as we take seriously God's growth in our life. And so this week, we continue in our series and we're going to talk about this one. How do God's people invest their money in the kingdom? Right? We believe that a mark, a, mat- a mark of maturity among Jesus' people is that we are radically generous. We don't just spend money. We don't donate money. We don't contribute a tip. No, no, we, like a seed in the soil, we plant our resources that God has given us to have a, uh, an impact that will outlast us. And so in order to unpack this value, in order to see this value on display, I'm going to invite you to turn with me, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and before we could really understand this, we need some background. How many of you guys like a good map? Any map, map nerds out there? More of us than I thought, okay. Uh, my seven-year-old will be driving, he goes, Dad, can I use a map? I go, we're just going home, buddy. You know where it is. He goes, I know, but I love it. And he'll just sit there, and he, like, zooms all the way out. And he's like, the world! And then he zooms in, and he's like, Easton, You know, it's just so cool. So I love a map. And so here's what we have to understand before we dive in, okay? That's Jerusalem. That's where Jesus came, right? Jesus died there in Jerusalem. And the gospel, the movement that was birthed in Jerusalem, would eventually spread to the rest of the world. And so we find that in the early days of the church, that there was a man who was killing followers of Jesus. His name was Saul. And so he was murdering followers of Jesus until he became a follower of Jesus, all right? He becomes radically saved. God reaches down and saves him. And now he goes around the world perpetuating the same faith that he once tried to snuff out. And so he goes up north, and he's in modern-day Turkey. And everywhere he goes, he's preaching the gospel. And everywhere that that simple message is communicated, blast radius of transformation. Everywhere he tells people that God came down to save them and to bring them into relationship with himself, communities are formed, churches are birthed. He eventually moves out of Turkey, crosses the Aegean Sea into modern-day Greece, lands in Philippi. In Macedonia, continues in Macedonia to Thessalonica, travels eventually down to Achaia, right? You thought the traveling pants were cool. Friends, this is the traveling gospel in Greece, okay? And so he gets here, and look at the aftermath. See if you recognize some of these people, the Philippians, the Thessalonians, the Corinthians, the Ephesians. These are the people, these are the communities to whom much of the New Testament was written to. Okay, so even for those of you who are newer to the Bible, this is the context of Scripture. The gospel is preached, communities are formed, and now the New Testament is given to help these new followers of Jesus learn how to live out their new allegiance. They now follow a new God. What does that look like in real life? And so this is what's happening in the modern world, okay? Back to Jerusalem, back to where it all started several years, several decades now after this, we find that the people in Jerusalem are suffering. There is a severe famine in the land. There's no food. The economy has tanked, and everybody is suffering, including the family of faith. And so how does the family of God in Greece respond to the family of God suffering in Jerusalem? There's only one way to find out. And so Paul gets back on his horse. Metaphorically, there are no horses in this region that I can... No, that's not true. There are. Because Philip, his name means lover of horses. So there were horses. Maybe he took a horse. I don't know. But he's back on his metaphorical horse. And he travels back throughout the churches. And he's telling them, your members of your extended family in Jerusalem are suffering. They're dying. They're starving. And so here's my plan, he says to the churches. Here's my plan. Let's take an offering. Here's my plan. Why don't we all contribute into a pot, kind of like what we just did for Two for Talbot? let's contribute into a fund, and then from that fund we will travel back to Jerusalem and we will help our brothers and sisters who are starving. And so the question is, how are believers over here in Greece going to respond to a need that's hundreds of miles away in Jerusalem? I don't know. How are believers over here, hundreds of miles away, not even speaking the same language in most cases, how are they going to respond to the need that's 100 miles away? And I'll tell you right now, friends, you're not ready. You're not even ready for this. Like when you see this response, when you see the reaction, when you see how this offering goes down, I promise you, friends, you are going to be stunned because Paul himself was stunned. So can I show you how they respond? Can I show you the example that has been captured in the Holy Scriptures, not just as a testament to them, but as an example to you? Can I show you that for a few moments? You sure? Show me me that your Bibles are open. That's how I know you're sure, right? Bibles open, phones out. Here we go, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. This is God's Word. Look what it says. He calls this the collection for the saints. So how do God's people handle their money? Let's find out. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Let's pause right there. Four verses in, and Paul is already showing us that God's invisible grace becomes visible. God's invisible grace has become visible. Let's look what he says. He's talking to the church in Corinth, right, Right on the tip of Greece. He's talking to the church in Corinth, and he says, guys, You have to see what is happening to the north of you. You have got to see what is happening in Macedonia. You have got to see that the grace of God that has been given among those churches. He goes, look, it's like he's pulling out a map, and he goes, hey, you in Corinth, do you see it? Wow, look at God's grace. Do you guys see it in this room? Do you see God's grace up in Macedonia? Wow. And you're like, Sam, what are we looking at? How do you see God's grace? Isn't grace invisible? God's grace is not material. How do you see visibly God's grace, which is invisible? Here's the answer. I'll ask you a question. How do you see the wind? How do you see the wind? Not directly, right? Right? You don't see the wind. You don't go, wow, look at that. You see the wind in the impact that it's having on other things. You see objects in a field being moved, bending under the force and power of the wind. And in these moments, you go, wow, look at the wind. Wow, how strong is that wind? So I ask you again, how do you see the grace of God? given to and moving among the churches in Macedonia. Not directly. You see it in the impact that it's having on different aspects of their lives. You see it in the level of transformation that can only be explained by God's presence and intervention. You can see God's grace as you see it blowing through people's lives. As it moves and bends their speech as it moves and influences their attitudes, as it moves their work ethic and the way that they treat people around them. And so he says, do you see God's grace in Macedonia? What aspect of their life is being moved by the wind of God's grace? What aspect is bending under the weight of his grace? It says right here, their money. There is a wealth of generosity coming out of Macedonia. And Paul says, Guys, you gotta see this. Look at his grace. And so we see their generosity, and we might be tempted to conclude Oh, so they were wealthy. Man, they must have had those Gucci togas up there in northern Greece, right? Oh, man. They must have had the Versace sandals, right? Are you a thong sandal or not thong sandal? I'm just curious. Anybody? Nobody else feels as strongly about this as me. It's a big deal, man. And so they must be wealthy. They must be just really extravagant in their finances, right? For them to give so much? Not so fast. Look what he says. Yes, there was a wealth of generosity coming, but look what else was up there. Affliction and extreme poverty. Affliction. They were experiencing their own hard times. Extreme poverty. They didn't have a lot to begin with. And so I'm not an economics major, um, but I do know how to handle my own finances. And here's how things work typically in my home. I wonder if it's the same for you. If I'm experiencing severe affliction, right, let's say tons of medical bills, debt collectors, calling. it's hard right now, and my income has taken a hit, what do you think this equation is going to equal? Time to tighten the belt, right? Severe affliction and extreme poverty should equal, it's time to tighten the belt. This situation should have resulted to where when Paul and Titus come to take an offering, they go, guys, oh man, I, I so wish I could, but right now we're experiencing budget cuts. I, man, I really wish I could contribute. I will pray for those in Jerusalem. I will pray, I'll even write letters, but man, I wish I could contribute financially but I can't. I just, man, I can't. Severe affliction plus extreme poverty equals budget cuts. But is that what we see here? No, because there's another element to the equation. He goes, not only did they have their own affliction, not only was there extreme poverty, but we find in this people abundant joy. And we know that word joy, that is a fruit of the Spirit. In other words, in addition to their physical circumstances, these are followers of Jesus. These are people who belong to God's family, and as a result, regardless of what the bank account is doing, regardless of their physical circumstances, regardless of what's happening here on earth, their soul is secure, and so there is joy. There is joy that cannot be moved regardless of these other factors. And so what happens when we add their faith to the equation? What happens when we add the fact that they're followers of Jesus to this equation? Well, let's say it equals a wealth of generosity. It equals that they gave beyond their means. They were giving in such a way that left their financial advisor scratching their head, going, "Ah, oh, I'm doing the numbers here, Bob, and I don't think you should have given that much of the offering. "Hey, Judy, listen, I'm running the numbers here, and I've done it several times. This doesn't make sense. You're giving more than what is probably wise or advisable." And the cynics among us us might go, well, of course they gave more than they should have. They probably were manipulated. And there was probably some level of, of emotional abuse happening. And he wrote to them in such a way that, no, 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 this is not, they were not coerced, guys. No, they gave of their own accord. This was not an external compulsion. This was an internal compulsion. They gave in such a way, Paul says, that when Paul and Titus were tempted to skip them, you know, they have their own problems. They have their own needs. Man, I just saw on Facebook that the, that the Macedonians, they're, they're having their own. We probably should take an offering for them. Maybe we shouldn't go and ask them in their extreme poverty. And what do they do? They beg, please, don't you dare take away the privilege it is to give to this offering. Please, please, don't you dare skip over us. Don't let us miss this opportunity to be a blessing to those people in Jerusalem. And you look at this response, and you can't help but say to yourself, are you kidding me? This is not a fairy tale. This is not like a, like a, like a, a work of fiction that we go, wow, that's really cool. The moral of the story is, no, no, no. these are real people like you and me who are experiencing hunger, adversity, affliction, And yet they are so filled with joy that they are begging for the opportunity to give. Friends, are you kidding me? Paul, he is just as shocked. He goes, yep, this was not as we expected. They blew my mind with their generosity. He goes, I I did not expect that level of offering to come out of Macedonia. And so when you see this equation, you might be tempted to go, man, that's good people. Look, That's good people right there, right? No, no, that's not good people. That's God's grace. What you are seeing right now, friends, from this example in Macedonia, you are seeing God's grace working in and through a people. You are seeing his invisible grace become visible, powerfully blowing in their lives, overflowing in joyful generosity. Have you ever seen a follower of Jesus do crazy, radical things with their generosity, right? Have you ever just seen somebody be like over-the-top generous, right? Here's what we should train ourselves to do. When we see that, don't go, wow, good people. No, 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 go, wow, God's grace. Because we know human nature We know how instinctive it is to hoard and self-preserve and to look out for numero uno. When we see people selflessly and with full abandon looking out for others because they are totally relying on God's provision for their own needs, that's God's grace. There is no other explanation. Anybody else want the wind of God's grace to blow in their life like that? Lord, make me generous. It's beautiful, friends, to realize that generosity is not something we muster. It's a way in which we're moved. God's grace moves us into a posture of reliance and generosity. And so Paul says, dude, you got to see this. He draws their attention to Macedonia. He goes, I want you to know, East Point Church, I want you to know about this biblical example of radical generosity. And so the question stands, why? Why is Paul telling people in Corinth what the people in Macedonia did? Why are we taking 30 minutes out of our week to examine an example of generosity from a couple thousand years ago? Well, the answer is found in the next part of our passage. Take a look. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Paul's putting forward this example because he's trying to say, let their grace be your example. Let their grace be your example. He's telling believers in the Corinthian church, and through the scriptures, he's telling East Point Church of the example in Macedonia because ultimately he wants God's people to follow it. He's putting forward this example because this is a mark of maturity that is worth emulating. And so he says here, look at their example. So let's do it, friends. Let's look at their example. How did they give? Let's see it. It says they gave themselves first to the Lord. The Macedonians weren't giving their money so that Paul would be pleased with them. The Macedonians weren't giving their money because they liked Paul. He's a good guy. I want to do that guy a favor. They weren't giving their money because they knew that Paul would then owe them a favor. They weren't giving their money so that they could have their name published in a newspaper in Jerusalem. No, 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 friends. They were giving their money. Actually, no, they weren't even giving their money. It says they were giving themselves. First and foremost, they were giving themselves to the Lord. They committed to worshiping God with their whole being. Every aspect of their lives devoted to him, including their finances. They were giving themselves to the Lord. And then, can't miss the and then, there's an order here that we can't mix up. They, get, they devoted their lives to the Lord. And then, in obedience to his will, they directed those pre-committed funds to the cause at hand. Let me say it this way, as they wrote out their checks, they were saying the Lord in the two line. And then the offering was just a quick memo. They were giving primarily as an act of worship to God. Friends, it is human nature to want to give, right? For any number of reasons. There are dozens of motivations that we that we have when we give our finances, right? Some positive, some negative. We can do it for recognition. Make a gift for the prestige and the clout. We give our money because we read that book that said how to make friends and influence people. We give our money because we want to have a voice at the decision-making table, or we want to make connections and network or accomplish things. Sometimes we even give to compete and outgive others. Those are negative reasons. But there are also positive reasons, right? We want to make a difference. We believe in a cause, We want to be helpful. Those are positive motivations. But here's what Paul is saying. Look at their example, because their motivation supersedes all of those, good or bad. Their primary motivation, friends, is to give as an act of worship to the Lord. He is highlighting the example of these Jesus followers, because they're doing what Jesus told them to do. Check it out. Look what Jesus says. When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Jesus says when people give and their motivation is recognition, he goes their reward is the like button. When people give publicly because they go, Ooh, do you see this? When people go, that's their reward. Don't spend it all in one place. Don't spend that reward in one place. You did it for recognition. Congratulations, you were recognized. He goes, no, no, that's not how my people give. Here's how my people give. Give so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. He tells his people, don't give for the audiences. Don't give for the recognition. Give to please God as an act of worship to him. And that's what the Macedonians did. They gave themselves to the Lord. Friends, when you give, when you make your offering or your donation or your tithe, who are you giving to? When you write your check, when you press the button, when you, when you type in the amount on your bank, whatever it is, however you give, in the act of giving, consciously, Who are you giving to? To whom do you picture yourself handing that gift? It's not about the leaders. It's not even about the movement. It's not even about the cause. It's about worshiping God, giving generously to Him as an act of worship. It's giving in a way that pleases our Father and says, I want your reward. I want your thumbs up. I want to hear at the end of my life, Well done, my good and faithful servant. And so he tells them, look at their example, because ultimately, I want you to follow their example. And so he turns his attention back to these Corinthians in the South, and he goes, guys, you excel in everything. And I feel like as a pastor, I get to say that to East Point Church and mean it. You guys excel in so much, church. Like, you, don't, you, you probably don't even recognize it. just being a ministry partner of this room, but, like, There are so many evidences that God's grace is blowing through this community. And I get to stand up here and have a front row seat as I just watch the Lord just move in this place. You excel in so much church. You're growing. Praise God. It's him, right? And so he says the same thing to the Corinthians. He goes, you excel in your faith. You excel in your speech. You're growing in your knowledge, in your zeal and earnestness for your convictions. Even in your relationships, you are excelling and growing. And now, I want you to excel in this act of grace also. Just as you're growing in every aspect of your life, just as all these different marks of maturity are blossoming in your life, I also want you to grow in the act of giving. With the example of Macedonian believers before you, give generously. Give yourself joyfully to the Lord. Give, not under compulsion because somebody's pressuring you. No, no, look at their example. Give of your own accord. Seek earnestly the opportunity and the privilege to work and give in God's kingdom. Friend, God is calling us to excel in the act of giving. He is calling his people, he's capturing this example of radical generosity so that he can, by his spirit, shape us into the same thing. Let their grace be your example, he says. And then before he leaves us, before he sends us from here, he tells us why. Before he just leaves us with their example, he tells us why this mark of maturity is so important in God's family. He tells us why we can't just settle for six. Why not just six out of seven, you know? What what is it about that radical generosity? What is it about giving of our finances? What is it about the way that we handle our, our finances as a community? Why is that a mark of maturity? What do we stand to lose if we neglect this trait? And that's what the last two verses are about. Look what he says. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Here's the last point, friends. Our gracious giving reflects our gracious God. Our gracious giving reflects our gracious God. He's saying, when you give like this, when you give the way the Macedonians gave, it is showing the world that your love is genuine. It shows your friends. It shows your neighbors. It shows all the people around you that your love for God and your love for people is authentic Giving of our money is a demonstration to the world that the gospel that we're sharing, the gospel that we're living, this is real. Think about it. Think about it logically. We're going to leave here in a few moments, right? And we're going to go into the world and we want to tell them about our generous God. We're going to go from here. We're going to tell the world about a God who gave so much of himself away for those of us who are spiritually poor. We're going to tell them about a God who left the comforts of heaven, who though he was rich, he became poor so that we who were spiritually poor, we who were impoverished, might become rich. We're going to tell them that, amen? We're going to tell them of a God who is crazy generous with his grace and mercy, right? Is that not why we exist? We're going to tell them. But here's what Paul says. Don't just tell them, show them. Because when you give, you are not just telling them. You are demonstrating to the world what your God's love and generosity look like. You are showing the world that God's generosity is what fuels your own. You are showing them that God's grace and God's mercy and God's generosity are not cliches. You're showing them that they are very real experiences that they can experience for themselves. You're showing people when you give like this that the gospel has taken such a root in your life and that the grace of God is so real and having such an impact on you, even on how you handle your treasure. Friends, when you live generous lives like this, you are showing them that not only has God's grace made a radical difference in your own life, but it can make it in their life as well. He's saying, yes, show the, yes. tell the world about God's generosity. Go and tell the world about this God. And then take an opportunity to give and show them. And that's why he makes it very clear. He says, I'm not giving you a command. Because if I were to flex my apostolic authority, if I were to just really put the pressure on and say, hey, give, right? Because if I give you a command, all that does is prove that you're compliant. But if I give you an opportunity, it proves that you're Sincere. Commands show that you're compliant. Opportunities show that you're sincere. And so he gives them this opportunity for this offering. And he says, I appeal to you take this opportunity, give to the collection, show the world the beauty of our gracious God. Give in a way that reflects your generous Father in heaven. That's mature. We have this example before us because the Lord wants to make us into the same thing. Lord, may we grow as a generous people. Father, may we grow in the ability to reflect your love and generosity to the world around us. Grow us, Lord. And so, friends, as we respond, I want to ask you a couple of questions here, okay? Number one, do you give regularly as an act of worship to the Lord? There are many of you in this room that I'm excited for, right? Because there's a moment in your life, and it's that first step, the first time that you step out to make giving an act of worship to the Lord. There's something about that moment. And if, you're, if that's you, I encourage you, talk to some older Christians in your community group. Go and talk to some veteran Jesus followers and ask them, what was it like the first time that you decided to make giving a part of your worship? I'm excited for you, friends, because that moment, what I'm starting to see there is, That's his grace. That's his grace blowing in your life, calling for every aspect of your being to be submitted as worship. So is that you? Has his invisible grace moved you in your heart to start to contribute to the mission and the ministry? Obey him. That's between you and the the Lord. Encourage you to obey him. But as you do, as you consider stepping out and making that a part of your worship, remember, hey, give yourselves to the Lord. It's not about a movement, it's not about an organization, not about a leader. It's between you and him. And if you have a little bit of cynic in the back of your mind that goes, ah, here I knew it was coming. Here's the ask. I'm gonna give you permission here. Tell you what, don't give to East Point Church. Like, what if, what if you just took us out of the equation, if that helps you circumvent that, that cynicism, you go, hey, just go give somewhere in his kingdom, go and test it out, go and try it for three months, and go and make giving an act of worship, put the Lord on the two line, and then whoever's on the memo, I don't care, and go see what the Lord does, as you see his grace blow through your life. I'm excited for those of you who are ready to step out in faith and say, Lord, I want to worship you even with my finances. Second question, those of you who are here, and you're like, man, I, I've been doing that for years. I'm a faithful giver. I give regularly, not sporadically. I, I, I worship God with my finances. That is submitted to him. Then here's my question for you. How can you reconnect with the heart of the matter? How can you remind yourself through your gifts that your regular giving is a matter of cheerful worship to the Lord? And so when I was growing up, my mom and dad, they would always write the, their offering check Sunday morning. Right? And so I remember when you know auto pay and the bill pay and all these things came out. I was like, Mom and Dad, are you gonna like sign up for that? And they were like, No, right? Because every morning we want to see if we are giving it and, and they would always say there's something about counting out those bills or writing out that check. Where it was just a little discipline for them to remember, hey, this is for worship, right? Instead of out of sight, out of mind. I do bill pay, all right? I love mom and dad, but I'm a millennial. I don't know what to tell you, you know? So whatever that means for you, however you can, I'm just asking, how can you reconnect with that? How can you reconnect the dots between the gift and a heart of worship? Make it a heart of worship. And then for those of you who want to give here, East Point, you'll notice, like, we don't pass offering plates. Um, It actually started as a COVID thing. We were like, let's share our wealth, not our germs. You know, it started like that. But then we kind of just liked it. I'll never forget my mom telling the story when she was a new Christian and the plates were being passed around and the pastor standing up there watching the plates and she just felt so guilty, you know, of like, I don't have anything to put in here, you know, and it just, and we go, what a great reminder that Jesus has called us to give, not for recognition, but for the Lord. And so give in secret. Give online. You can give in the back. There's a box where you can drop your checks. Give on your app. However you want to give, do that. But I just want to explain how the giving works here. We pool our resources to fund the ministry. And so thank you for your gener- Thank you for being a part of what God is doing. But hey, it's between you and him, we'll never ask for money. To say, we need you. We say, we ask you to worship God through your finances. And whatever he tells you to do, obey it. Obey it. Amen? Lord, We love you. We pray that every time that we step into your word, we pray that you would change us a little bit more, make us look more like Jesus, and specifically, may this community be a radically generous church. pray that this generosity would overflow in glory for your name, that people would see the generosity of this community, whether it's through Two for Talbot or or through just giving their tithes and offerings or, or through any other organization, may their generosity result in people going, Wow. They must mean it because people don't give to something phony. So may the sincerity of our hearts be shown through our generosity so that people will see our gracious and beautiful God. We pray this in Jesus' name and the church said, amen.
0: We want to thank you again for joining us for this week's sermon podcast. My name is Daniel, and I'm the music and creative pastor here at East Point Church. And if you were challenged, encouraged, or impacted in any way by this week's sermon, we would love to hear about it. It's your stories that encourage us and what we do, and we just want to celebrate what God is doing in your life. So you can go ahead and share with us at podcast at com. Also, make sure that you subscribe to our channel to stay up to date with the latest sermons. Have a great week.